0: Heidegger would have said there is something that comes before thought or there is something that is an object of thought that should be thought about and that is existence and this has certainly never been given anything like the thought it really deserves what does he mean by this? it's the whole it's the whole essence existence thing again but restated in a way obviously in order to think now, okay let's take it in stages Descartes addressed somewhat of the same question what can I know? I see the world, I see the I see the world around me, seeing the shapes and forms. I have an idea of myself, you know, but I can see a candle looking like a real candle, but if it melts, it looks like wax. Are those one and the same thing? Clearly they're not. So I do see things, but my senses could be deceived. you know I could see sheets of ice. you know the whole landscape could be covered in, in snow. Am I aware that those are made up of individual snowflakes? Of course not, but they are, right? So, again, it depends on perspective. So he started then to say, you know, I have to basically start with doubting everything I know. And, And very quickly, Descartes' procedure was, oh, wait a minute, if there's a doubter, there must be a thinker. And if there's a thinker, there must be existence. And so he came across his definition of existence through this idea of cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Heidegger was dealing very much with the same concepts, but in a different way. Uh, and this is without, by the way, getting into all the other sub critiques of Descartes. We'll just jump over those right now and return to Heidegger. He was saying that, look, before you can think, you must exist. In fact, he described it again in poetic language by saying that being opens a door for thinking, or even thinking opens a door for being. A, you can see it either way. By thinking about the the wrong things, you're not thinking. It's very German. It's very existentialist. I know, but the, you know, this is. To me, this is extremely, extremely profound. By not thinking about what thinking should be thinking about, you're not thinking. And the ultimate goal of thinking, which another philosopher would call an object of thought, is existence. No one today is thinking about existence or being. right? Because you're not thinking about existence and being, you're actually not really thinking at all. And therefore, Heidegger had a multiplicity of ways of describing that un- that inauthentic, to use a very broad existentialist term, inauthentic uh, state of consciousness that he's subdefined as being das Man, and all these other terms that are sort of irrelevant for this dialogue here. But he basically divided man, as Kierkegaard did, into the authentic and inauthentic individual. And the inauthentic individual is thinking, but he's thinking about, you know, things that are not important in a philosophical sense. And then... Relating to what we've just been saying in the last lot of minutes, he includes that to be the highest philosophers of the land. The high, the greatest philosophers who ever lived, he puts into that same category. Perhaps for slightly different reasons, but, but nevertheless, he put them all in that category. A guy like that's not gonna make any, he's not gonna be invited to too many parties and he's not gonna have too many friends. So this describes, you know, the backlashing against Martin Heidegger. He said that thinking opens a door for being to enter. He really of, often spoke in terms of being in the German as a presence, as an actual thing, it's a, you know, a, a real thing. But to stick more to what he was saying, when you are thinking about existence, and he then even changed, again, he changes the terminology, he moves from saying you think about being to that you care for being. He changed the term in German as sorge, right? It's a profound sense of caring. Other people would call it loving, and of course then we have all the baggage that that word has, so we never use it. Caring is a far deeper word. In fact, uh, Thomas Moore, the author, pointed out that the word curé, which meant priest, is the equivalent of the word care. And in Thomas Moore's work, he said that at a time of great grieving, like at a a death of a parent or grandparent, everyone gathers, everyone dresses in black, black, everyone is somber, and everyone's in deep grief. The curé, or the priest, is there to remind you of the presence of death. Not that they're actually doing this, of course, the Christians, but that's the theory. And the, the higher theologians know this. He's there to be the, the presence behind the grieving, to say, all is sorrow. And, you know, and he's the one you rest on or you turn to to say, Father, what is this all about? All is suffering, all is... So the presence of the curé is to remind you, wake up from the cups and the saucers, like Rilke has so beautifully described. Get up from the table, walk out, and find the church that your fathers forgot. Answer the call of being. Theology, of course, has abused this. So says, so have the philosophers according to Heidegger. Let's bring it back. Bring back the intense awareness of the care of your existence. How it becomes existentialism is why I'm most intrigued personally, is because he's saying care about your existence. Do not contaminate what I'm saying with the care of humanity's existence, brother, next door neighbor, the underprivileged, the oppressed, whatever. We're talking only in existential terms here about your own profound relationship with yourself, if that's even possible, which Heidegger doubted because he had a whole class of people who can't do this, the inauthentic Das Man. He was under no illusions about it. Neither was Sigmund Freud, by the way. But the point being that keep this private because it's not your beingness, your sense of existence is really ultimately not the same as others. Later on in, in the second part of being in time, he spoke more broadly about mass movements you know and how we are kindred so he he wasn't an existentialist in the hardcore tradition he also talked about all of mankind's responsibility for this but in the earlier works he was very much focused uh, in a strictly you know you wake up to the through the to the uh, power and the uh, significance of your own life and your own existence and you do that also in a in a way that involves facticity you know wake up to your own existence and on a recent interview on Red Eyes Creations, I, I tried to give a few, it was very brief so we couldn't get into it, that that might even involve people to do certain meditations. You know, you, in fact, it might even take a physical visitation. I mean, literally for a person to go back to the street and look at the front door of the house in which they were born. Um, of course, a lot of this can be done mentally. Lie in bed one day and just think of your whole life from the beginning, from day one, the, the cot that you were born in, uh, the smell of the blanket, you know, the pencil that you wrote with in school, all the various smells and odors that you knew. Um, what it felt like to see an animal for the first time, what it was like to be transfixed by a painting. All those experiences the feeling of water on your hands, hot and cold, pain, sorrow, you know, the light coming through the window, whatever. These existentialistic uh, visions are not collective. Somebody who says, Oh, what well, they are, everybody has an experience of fire and water. From Hedeker's point of view, that's irrelevant. No, you are the one who had the experience, and that particular experience is absolutely unique to you. It's only later on because you have to coexist with other people and you have to seek approval from those people and you have to wear a social mask that then you lose your center and selfhood and the uniqueness of these experiences. I always point to the movie Fearless, which I believe is from beginning to end an entirely Heideggerian film. There's others as well. And in which the person has now been re-identified through a death experience. In Heidegger's later work, of course, he talked about being unto death as being one of the critical factors that brings you back into the presence of existence or being, is what hi- it was first coined by Kierkegaard, which is the f- being unto death, which in simple layman's terms is just a feeling of mortality—the Damocles sword that you know is finite. Your life is going to end one day, and this will give tremendous lucidity, and it will stop this chit chat, and it will stop this irrelevancy that exists in all people's lives. Um, it's facticity again. Death is inevitable. Of course, he'd hope as all Taoists and philosophers hope, that it would, it would go to the level you're talking about where a person would have a daily, momentarily cognizance of death imminently. Yeah, you're talking about one in 300 million people right, who may have that and even then they may not have it in an authentic way, maybe a paranoic, neurotic, there's many neurotics all over the world who go, I never stop thinking about that. Yeah, because you're afraid to die, that's a different thing. No, no, Seeing life and death in a philosophical way is a very Taoist thing because they're acting all the time on one another. You can't have one without the other. It's the polarities with, between birth and the other, yeah. the mysterious point of life. Sufis, for instance, say that between each breath is a is a pause. Right? You have life, you have the death, and then new breath. So it's literally there in everything. Is the is the so-called death? That word is so loaded, of course. And this is why Heidegger was, like I said before. You can enter his work through, if people are interested in linguistics, because he was a real uh, wordsmith in the sense that he altered and changed words in this way in order to create a new language to describe things that are so contaminated that we simply can't understand what he meant, or a good philosopher like him, because the word is so loaded with prejudice. So he literally tried to coin his own language, and most academic commenters on Heidegger applaud him, think he did a good job. He has some critics, but... You know, the intelligent people who think he did a wonderful, wonderful job, including using this word Das Ein. Das Ein is the man who's awakened to thinking about existence or caring for existence. He, he, he used this term Das Ein. As a, opposed to another kind of man who couldn't give a monkeys about it, they're called Das Mann. And that meant not just an individual man, the man, the hollow man of, of T.S. Eliot, but, um, the, the mass man as well. They had two the terms. The they, they. Very yeah, very in German, very exactly. Very exactly and you see the other fascinating thing for me as I said or hinted earlier is that I was unable to understand Heidegger's own idiom but what I did understand I was re- relating because of the other paradigms I'd been long exposed to like art. For instance I, for, for all my famous, favorite artists were surrealists like uh, René Magritte and Salvador Dali and Giorgio de Tirico and all these people and they are putting into painting or putting into aesthetics the, the teachings of these great existentialists so, and same with the poets like Rilke and all this. And not only that, but even in modern movies, I think Heidegger has, you know, people should realize just how important his philosophies are in, in, very, in music, even in many rock bands, and certainly in modern movies. It's part of the reason why, you know, I wanted to start doing this work more publicly in, at this aspect of my own life, is because I, I'm so, I see it so much now. You know, and this existentialism permeated into literature. We, we couldn't have a Hermann Hesse. You couldn't have a Colin Wilson you you, know, I mean, you really would be handy you handicapped today you know the whole outsider Steppenwolf you know loner type of, of individual this idiosyncratic uh, loner type is all the product of these kinds of thinkers okay we know it more in fiction but it actually started somewhere he was speaking about a very caring thing in a way a, a sort of compassion that no Christian has a, has ever come close to you know although he probably hate that word again care this deep sense of awareness. But tried not to broaden it so that it becomes collective. You can't care for another person. You can't love another person. This is all nonsense. First of all, you can't have it if you don't have it for yourself, right? Uh, this is just another important point. But talking about the dread and the being unto death, he said, "Of course, people in later life—it'll more—it's not going to hit the twenty-year-old who's parting from morning to night, but it's certainly going to hit older people. Will start gaining this, or if you have a major tragedy in your life, or you happen to be of a very philosophical bent." but the masses are never going to be involved in this but the philosophical person who starts to realize their own mortality he's obviously said but he said it in philosophical language that that gives you imminence you become very aware of you know the finiteness of your life in in poetical terms what he would how this is expressed and this is again one of the most ex- things that I'm th- in, in, you know affected me so deeply, again because the background was from art, is that then, what about the inanimate? If you're really present, doesn't the light on that vase and the the existence of this table matter? The chair I'm sitting in is just a dead thing that just happens to fit your ass and the door handle just happens to be a thing you open to the door and the great sculptor Henry Moore would have perked up at this point because Henry Moore from birth to death kept talking about how people just relate to things functionally. This is a man who created a sculpture you know, a beautiful nude because the hills in the background had the same shape so if this is going to be in a museum courtyard he's already thinking about the topography around that's heidegger that's existentialism that's the understanding of, in the, of the of the microcosm and the macrocosm we have no conception of this we'll sit behind a cubicle for 60 years you know we'll be suit and tie and we you know just complete prisoners without even even noticing it right so again to speak in, in aesthetic terms he would say Like William Blake had said so beautifully in ages past, is not the rain, the wetness of the tiles, the dew on a horse's back, the leaf blowing down the street, human? It might even be more human than you imagine yourself to be, because existentially speaking, if you're a das man, maybe you don't even deserve that term human. And even other inanimate things have more humanity than you do, because they they are present, they're in the now. So the thing that really interested me and really motivated me to keep studying him was th- was this thing about the inanimate, because independently and privately I'd come to the same conclusion, and that is, we become so dependent on other human beings, because we seek the the approval. We need their cues and affectations. Then, unfortunately, like all the psychologists have so many times pointed out, and then you don't get it, because of course you may want something, doesn't mean that life's going to respond. So the child growing up wants the approval of X, Y, and Z, uh, finds out that, okay, it doesn't come on cue. And then you have the inevitable neuroses, which arises when you don't have the approval of other people. And then you have the psychic breakdown. You're now, this is one of the things that makes you a non-human being. It's because by not receiving what you think you need, because you're now so dependent on others, and if they don't give you the cues and affectations back, because you're too fat, you got pimples on your face, you know, or you speak funny, or, you know, whatever it might be, we know, we know all this stuff. When you don't get that, then you become a neurotic individual, and by becoming a neurotic individual, why this was so interesting to me, from a conspiratorial point of view, it plugged into that, is because what happens to the neurotic individual? He becomes vulnerable to control from above. So people who think this digression into Heidegger is just oh, what the hell's this I'm on about now? He's you know got nothing else to do but this. It's fundamental to the whole understanding of the matrix or architecture of control, because that neurotic individual who's become not only fixated on expectation fixated on goals, fixated on the approval of other people, who will now conform and do anything to get that approval, meaning weaken his sense of self to the point where it doesn't even exist, etc., 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 demand other people around him, including his most intimate people in his life, to do the same thing, to receive that approval, who will play games with other people to say, if you're not giving me the approval, I'm not going to give it to you, and then we have the normal dysfunctional relationships. All of this is is basically creating the mud that creates the bricks to build the global village and the new world order.